0: This is Maureen Milliken. This is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And we have our special guest. Yes, we do. Liz, will you
1: introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Elizabeth Milliken. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm a history professor there. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes she's our guest. Yes. Yes. She's I guess she's, she's visiting her.
2: she's visiting the other Portland for Christmas. So, and maybe someday our other sister will Nikki. The, she she sneers at our podcast. Oh, I she don't does sneer. she doesn't sneer. have time to listen to she podcasts. She doesn't
0: sneer. She says she's not into true crime. Oh, uh, Okay, I told her she could be a guest. Lots no, of different stories. Too, she wasn't interested. Lots of different stories. No, though. Well. Anyway, <laughs> Liz is
2: gonna. Liz uh, often um, when she's home visiting is and our guest. And you might best. hear some
0: seagulls in the background. Yes, You're right. Add, to add uh, adding to the rain. atmosphere. Yeah. We're right up from We're the, near the water. from Portland
2: Harbor, the Portland Maine Harbor. And Liz often does Oregon based crimes and. Today today's no exception to that. Yes, yes. It's it's quite it. the crime. But do we have some updates to do first? We might, but I'm
0: not, yeah, I'm not I don't anymore. have anything. How about you, Liz? You said I you do. might have some updates. I do oh. have a couple of
1: updates, not substantive ones, but some of you remember, Um, you'll have to say what episode. I don't remember the numbers. Uh-oh. I did an episode on the heart murders. with uh-huh. a couple who killed their adoptive children by running the van off the coast uh-huh. of California mm-hmm. into the surf. It was last the, summer, right? Yeah, so look it up while she's talking. The, Washington, the Oregonian published the Washington Post story about the older sibling, Dante Davis. And it's just kind of sad because he had been in recent years serving in prison. He was not adopted with his siblings his other his the three younger siblings of his who were three of the six children okay so he
2: was an older brother of three of the kids. yeah he was an
1: older brother of Devante and i think it was um sierra i can't remember now which three right he was a little bit older than they were he was adopted with the other children in his family because of his behavior problems
2: and i just want to say too to our listeners You're going to be hearing some sirens. Initially, we were waiting for them, but there's been a lot over the past half hour, and so there must be something big going on.
0: Maybe we'll even have a story
2: on it. But there will be sirens in the background. And also,
0: I want to just, since it was interrupted anyways, uh, it was episode 53. Thank the you. The one about oh, okay, the Hart
1: family. Okay. And we're now on 72. So. so it's, it's just a sad story about how, you know, in a sense his life was saved by not being adopted by those crazy mm-hmm. ass women. But, mm-hmm. um, oh. but he, ah. even when he was being visited in prison, they didn't tell him about it because they just didn't want him to know while he was still in prison. Oh, so ah. he didn't find out about their deaths until he was released from prison in October 2018, which was more than six months after they wow. were killed.
0: So they probably didn't want him to act out or something. Yeah. In prison and then... yeah,
1: and he says, he's quoted as saying, that was the last little hope I had in my life, you know. I had that hope that I was going to see my little brothers again. One day we're going to kick it, he said. I used to cry sometimes thinking what we could be doing growing up. So it's sad. My other update, again, not substantive, was that I went to a panel a month or two ago of the reporters, photographer, and videographer on the incredible multimedia project that the Oregonian did on the Route 20 serial killer. Um, And it was just really, really interesting to see how they went about doing this incredible story. It's, um, you know, there was written portions, video portions of photography. It's a really, really effective multimedia project, and the reporting was excellent. Um, it really focused on the victims of this sicko guy who was going up and down Route 20 in Oregon, killing women. Interestingly, uh, the lead uh, reporter, Noel Crombie, is also a reporter on some of the stories in the Oregonian that I take a little bit issue with in terms of the story, the murder I'm going to be talking about is my main mm-hmm. thing. But but she did an excellent job with this project. So if you Google Ghosts of Route 20, Oregonian, it'll be the first thing. That comes. And you should listen to our episode number 60. Yes. yes. And
2: also I have links to it or on our website. Yeah, yeah. I think that I've gotten good. that far Hamilton in our, yeah. Good. and so now you have another organ. Well, you guys got a, lot a lot, of friend.
1: Oh, by the way, i also say this, poor Kyron Horman is still missing. Yes. Sorry Aww, about that.
0: The little friend hopefully, Faye. I, I think, his, think he's never going to be I found. think his
1: mother says these things now and then about, oh, we've got something new coming, kind of just as a way to keep his name. Just kind of like the Ayla Reynolds.
0: Well, thing. well and I feel Dr. bad. Dr. But, Phil just did a, um, one of his podcasts on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I started to listen to that and I haven't, yeah. I only listened to a couple. And of I himself. like Dr. Phil, but yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. as we know, yeah. we but, talked
2: yes, about it in our yes. last episode. Yeah, same with Ayla Reynolds, who was our episode three. Yes. She's the anniversary, the ninth, eighth anniversary of her disappearance. Oh, it was the eighth. Just yeah, passed a couple weeks ago. And the same thing kind of happens where her mom, I think she's done everything she can legally and stuff. But, you know, every once in a while you hear from her t- trying to.
1: Aww. But in any case... So the murder I'm going to be talking about today is the most high-profile murder case in Oregon history. I think it's safe to say it still is. And up until the time of the murder investigation in 1989 and 1990, it was the longest and most expensive murder investigation in Oregon. There are always these superlatives, be right? See. Shortly after midnight... On January eighteenth, nineteen 1989, the body of Michael Frankie, the head of the Oregon Department of Corrections, was found murdered outside a door to the office building where he worked. He had been stabbed in the heart and it. died, apparently after making his way back to the building from his parked car and breaking a glass panel in the door it. in an attempt to open it. The state police became the primary investigators of the murder, along with the Marion County District Attorney, Dale Penn. This was on state property, and um, Michael Frankie is obviously a high-ranking state official. That's why um, they were the ones who were investigating. And they quickly settled on the theory that Frankie, leaving work the night before, had come upon a car thief attempting to steal his car and had been fatally injured in the confrontation. Fourteen months later, a petty criminal, meth addict, and dealer named Frank Gable was charged with Frankie's murder. In 1991, he was convicted of Frankie's murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yet, a number of people were not and have not been convinced of the prosecution's theory and the guilt of Frank Gable. These people have pointed to inconsistencies at the crime scene, unreliable state witnesses, other more plausible suspects, and theories of the case and the lack of any physical evidence that placed Frank Gable anywhere near the crime scene. Oh, nice. Most of all, those who doubted Gable's guilt and the sixth theory of the case believed that there were strong indications that Frankie had been on the verge of uncom- uncovering high level corruption oh. in the department of corrections and that he was going to expose this corruption and testimony. He was scheduled to give before the state legislature, the day after he was murdered. Mm, what a coincidence! <laughs> yeah, that's you know, yeah. it's one of these things of how many our coincidences just yes. coincidences. These skeptics of the official story propose a theory that Michael Frankie was assassinated to keep the lid on this expose, and the conviction of Gable was the result of a cover-up engineered by corrupt corrections officials state police, and possibly even the then governor of Oregon, Ooh. Neil Goldschmidt. Wow. Mm-mm. These skeptics include a columnist for the Oregonian newspaper, later moving on to the Portland Tribune, Phil Stanford, Steve Jackson, a reporter for the Statesman Journal newspaper based in Salem, which, where the murder occurred, it's the state capitol. And I just Rome. want to say,
2: I think he's the guy, a couple episodes ago, the Roy Melanson, he, I think he's the same guy who wrote the book, about the the case that brought Roy Melanson oh. to life, the girl with the braids, oh, you know, we'll the, have where to they look, look her up and see if ah, he's the same ah, guy. Yeah, I think he is. I
1: mean both of these are I'll talk about the credibility of the sources. Yeah. Both of these are people who worked in the reputable, you know, you know, mainstream press of Oregon. Another uh, skeptic of the official story is Jim Hill, who was a state senator at the time of the murder and later state treasurer. And interestingly too the brothers of the murder victim, Kevin and Pat Frankie, um, early on were very skeptical of the official story and have continued to support uh, this sort of corruption in high places theory and also have advocated for Frank Gable, who was the guy who was convicted. Over the years, after a number of failed appeals... Gable continued to serve as prison sentence um, outside of Oregon, actually. Um, the conspiracy theorists were dismissed by state officials, major figures in the legal community, and Oregon's biggest newspaper, the Oregonian, mm-hmm. as misguided, obsessed, and even possibly delusional. Geniuses are frequently... Yes. Then, in April of 2019, just this past year, U.S. Magistrate Judge John Acosta ruled that Gable should either be released from prison or retried within 90 days because of errors during his trial. Mm.
2: And how many years has he been in, did you say? Oh, it's about 30.
1: I think it was Mm -hmm. even, a yeah, so it's been... Wow. Yeah, 29. 29
0: 29, years.
1: Acosta said in his ruling, in quotes... The trial court erred in excluding evidence of third-party guilt, and that trial counsel provided ineffective assistance in failing to assert Gable's federal due process rights in the face of the trial. Mm -hmm. The major error the judge cited for his decision was a confession by another suspect that was made months before Gable's trial and was kept secret Mm -hmm. and could have credibly changed the jury's verdict. If it had been able to be part of Gable's defense. Mm-hmm. After an appeal against the judgment from the state of Oregon failed, Gable was released in July of this year. This shocking ruling has brought new attention to the murder of Michael Frankie, And given those who always doubted Gable's guilt renewed credibility and a more receptive hearing, was Gable or some other random criminal responsible for Frankie's death? Or was frankly killed as a result of a criminal conspiracy at the highest levels of Oregon's government? Ooh. So at this point, I just want to voice my whole kind of caution because uh, I am very leery of conspiracy theories, and we live in a time where conspiracy theories are you know whipping around yeah. left and right. They're deliberately employed. I believe in a you know, deceptive way. They, uh, you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. Um, It's very easy to be drawn in Mm -hmm. by conspiracy theories. And this, the conspiracy, the possible conspiracy in this case, you know, has kind of bait for various political agendas, you know, kind of deep state you know, right obsessed, right wingers find things in it, mm-hmm. you know, anti-law enforcement, uh left wingers find stuff in it that is, you know, something sp- for everybody. there's a little something for everybody. I think though, given that, well, I'll talk about the sources I use, but there's enough kind of credibility on both sides to, to make it worth, I have to say, I'll say it, I'll say, I really haven't made I can't really decide where I kind of land.
2: And I'll I'll add because I've been listening to the podcast Murder in Oregon about this same case that it's like we were talking a little earlier about Stephen Avery and whether you think he's guilty or innocent. There was a lot of stuff that went down that shouldn't have right. and anytime somebody is guilty of a crime, one of the reasons we have the laws regarding how the justice system works is so you can determine you've got the right Right. person. And one thing that strikes me about this, similar to Stephen Avery case, is that a lot of things were ignored that shouldn't have been. And a lot of, like, if the conspiracies are wrong, then the people
1: investigating did everything they could possibly do to make them look right, you
2: know.
1: Well, I think one of the big things, it doesn't necessarily... Prove the conspiracy right. But one of the big things that the, I'll call it the official story supporters have said is that Frank Gable was convicted. It was a strong case.
2: Yeah, but with this federal judge, yeah.
1: with this federal judge dismissing, you know, basically saying the prosecution's case, in fact, you know, wasn't uh, strong enough. This guy shouldn't be in prison anymore. You've got to retry him or release him. Um, the fact that the federal judge would go that far, right. uh, kind of Of in a sense takes the core of the official story and and shatters it. You know that Mm -hmm. you know that there are big things always been. Oh, Frank Gable was convicted of this crime. And my
2: thought about that too is that yes, he was because the people controlling the justice system fixed it. So he was. I mean, that's why he had Brady violations. Right, Right. 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 I mean, you can make anyone. Look guilty and be convicted if you can control the situation and don't, and and you manipulate the justice system. And I'm not saying that means he was falsely convicted or whatever, but because you obviously have the story to tell, but that when we've seen it over and over and over again, when prosecutors ignore their Brady obligations, when they, when evidence is manufactured, when other evidence isn't looked at at all or pursued. A jury only knows what they're presented. And, exactly. Right. And that's why I get so pissed off when people are like, oh, he got off on a technicality. These quote-unquote technicalities are the basis of our justice right. system. Right, exactly. And yeah. it has to work right for justice itself to
1: work. Exactly. So yeah. that's my little and, and I'd also say that speech. those who are supporters of the official story have a tendency to say, well, they talk about this vast conspiracy and there's... Sometimes when people are trying to downgrade the credibility of an alternative theory, they, they it's a kind of straw dog argument. It doesn't necessarily have to be that vast a conspiracy. No, uh, it's people covering uh, their the, ass. the, yeah. the <laughs> If the conspiracy theorists in this are correct, it didn't. It was really could have been done by just a handful of That's people. It's easy right. to do. And, and do Oregon is a time. relatively small state, right. not in geography, but in population. And mm-hmm. it was even smaller back in 1989. Yes. You know, it was a kind of small world that all this was operating right. in. So um, so that's kind of, yes. you know, but let me just say what my sources are. You mentioned the podcast Murder mm-hmm. in Oregon. This is a podcast that launched this fall. And it is, uh, I have to give a warning, only 10 of the 12 episodes have dropped. So I, I've i listened to all 10. I didn't have the chance to review as much of it as I would have liked. Um, so some of my, and it does kind of go off In kind of some side, it does, yeah. Some side roads. Um, I think it could have been a lot more concise, but um, but I don't know what the last two episodes are going to be about. You know, I can see what happens with that. It basically showcases the work um, and theories of Phil Stanford, who is a journalist. who's worked in Oregon for many many years. At the time of the murder, um, and up until I think about 1994, he was. Really, basically the premier columnist at the Oregonian, which is the major newspaper. In Oregon. It's based in Portland, but it's really seen as kind of the major statewide newspaper. And this is a really prestigious columnist. Uh, if anyone is familiar with the Oregonian, Steve Dean is the guy who's pretty much got that slot now and has really since I moved to Oregon in 2001. So, you know, he working for a credible newspaper, had an interesting background. I won't get into all of it. He's really kind of showcased throughout this whole podcast. So it really is based on his theories of the case, which is very much the conspiracy theory. Though I have to say he is... Pretty pretty responsible. He doesn't sort of name names in the sense that he doesn't come out and say, this is the guy who I think, you know, had Michael Frankie murdered and everything. But he he presents all kinds of problems with the official story and various kinds of leads that um, leads him to conclude that there was a conspiracy. He eventually actually ended up more or less getting fired from the Oregonian mm -hmm. because the uh, Oregonian's uh, basic editorial stance – up until actually even possibly the present day, is that the official story was the right, right. one. And Can't speak
2: it. truth to power. and expect, Right. You know. um, he
1: then went and worked for the Portland Tribune, which is at some points it's been a weekly, sometimes a biweekly. Yeah, I thought they called it the Willamette Weekly. No, that's a different one. Oh, okay. That's a different one. So the Portland Tribune wrote columns for them for many years. I'm not sure what he's doing now, but he has written a total of about a 100 columns on this case over the years. Wow. So that is the podcast I'll just mention. The producer um, is Lauren Bright Pacheco, who used to work as a producer, I think, or an assistant producer on the Dr. Oz show. So I don't know what mm. that makes her credible or not. She's based in New York and she did a previous podcast with uh, Phil Stanford on his prize winning investigation of the Happy Face Killer. He Ooh. did a whole series actually shortly before he was fired from the Oregonian on this serial killer, um, and they did a prior podcast based on that. So for whatever it's worth, you know, that's a major source that I've used. There's also Coin6, a major broadcast entity based in Portland, Oregon, has a really interesting multimedia project called Broken Dome that you can find Mm -hmm. online. They have several write-ups. They also have, I found most useful, is the original their original news broadcasts, like the morning the body was found, various oh, interviews cool. with oh, people. Cool. Um, and it's interesting. One of the things it shows is that TV news used to have much longer news stories. I mean, yeah. we're t- I'm talking like three to four minutes as opposed to like 30 to 50 seconds yeah. like yes. they do now. So that's interesting. Right. This old video was really helpful Oh, That's yeah. For me, especially yeah. in figuring out the layout of the crime scene, which is something it's I'm going confusing. to get into. Yeah. And they have some other interesting information as well. The newspapers I use, I've already mentioned the Oregonian, Willamette Week, which is another alternative weekly, still publishes in Portland, the Portland Tribune, which has been published weekly, bi-weekly at various times, and the Statesman Journal, which is the Salem. Um, based newspaper, you know, remember Salem is the state capital. And what's interesting is that particularly Willamette Week and Portland Tribune have always been skeptics about the official story. Mm. And the Oregonian, you know, the kind of big statewide paper has always been the really pretty aggressive uh, supporter of the official story. So there's always been this kind of sniping between them over Mm -hmm. the story. And and then the Statesman Journal, their main reporter on this story, Steve, Jackson was also a skeptic of the official yes. story. So there's a lot of what I would say credible news sources that had problems with the official story. The one thing too I'll say is that I had trouble finding original news stories from these papers oh, yeah. online. It was yeah. in the, yeah. So, so I when remember. I, yeah. so when I have used, you know, used news stories for information from all these different um, Newspapers—they often are from the early 2000s on, and so often they're overviews, yes, or reassessments, right. um, what I um, yeah. and so that's just a kind of qualifier. and you lose a
2: lot of the original original, details, details. yeah. So and, um, and can I just say too before we there was something I wanted to say earlier and forgot when we were talking about you know our feelings about it is that conspiracy can be a loaded word. And um, especially, uh, you know, with all the JFK conspiracies right, right, the past right. few decades, it uh, frequently is kind of a code word for crazy talk, right, crazy right. people talk. But it doesn't take many people, especially people in positions of power, to conspire right. to cover their asses when they want to keep their comfortable positions. Exactly. And I think that's where the people who are skeptics of the official story come from. Not that they believe Martians have come right, down or right. that there was this... You know, and a cover-up can happen fast. Oh, shit, we have to cover our right. asses. We need to do something about this. You know, It's not people necessarily planning in some secret basement right, bunker right. for months. And it
1: doesn't necessarily, I mean, there are there are actual conspiracies, you know. Yes. And as you said, they generally tend to be these things where it's actually a relatively small number of people right. who are able to... Because the more you
2: have, uh, right, the more right. you have, the more likely. Um, given
1: yeah. that, there are a couple things I did come across that definitely kind of went off the deep end on this and and kind of went way further with Mm -hmm. this story. And so I've stuck with these people who basically believe in a conspiracy theory, but it's, they are responsible enough to kind of keep it, you know, but you will find things out there that's on the story that is like saying specific people did this and this is how it happened and, and are speaking with kind of certitude that actually fell Stanford himself were Kevin Frankie, Michael Frankie's brother, who's the one who's sort of the most obsessed about the case right. of the bro- of the two brothers. Don't go, at least not in public, you know. So, so there are you can find some really wacko stuff about this particular case um, if you are searching online. Just yeah. a warning. But these sources I've given. There also was um in the Dennis Farina era of unsolved mysteries <laughs> uh, in 1991. Yeah, was... They had a segment on this Forgot mystery. To. So that was this was a few weeks. Ago. I think, before the trial began in 1991. So I did watch that. Oh, that was so... <laughs> I saw a reference that in the Robert Stack era it would have been... You know, just a couple years before, uh, there was an episode two, but I couldn't find that Mm. one. Uh, Uh, bummer. There's also a movie, I did find it on YouTube, I haven't had a chance to watch Mm. it, I just found it last night, that's based on Phil Stanford, I think he was the writer for a feature film called Without Evidence, that's based (laughs) on this case that has the young Angelina Jolie in her first major role. And I just watched just a few minutes of it last night, and it looks pretty cheesy. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, something fun, I so, mean, maybe I'll watch it and do an update. And so, um, when we last left Michael Frankie, he was lying dead on the yes. So, so let me talk about the murder itself, what they know of it, and the crime scene. To my mind, the inconsistencies in the crime scene details surrounding that are what still I find the most troubling and most difficult to reconcile with the official story. So, I'll just sort of say that up All front. Right, yeah. So, January seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine, Michael Frankie, who was the head of the Department of Corrections in Oregon and his staff were working on testimony that Frankie was going to give before state legislatures the following day. There was a committee that was actually charged with looking into major cost overruns that were occurring in the Department of Corrections. Jim Hill, by the way, um, that state senator who was, is one of the skeptics of the official story, was on that committee and was a big admirer of Frankie's work, actually. He uh, had, and there is apparently photographs of this, uh, there is a butcher board. Uh, on an easel, you know, a, rather a butcher paper on an easel that Frankie was writing his that he who's going to go over before the state legislatures. And the last item on this butcher paper topics list was A shed, A as in the letter A dash shed, which referred to a large warehouse that was destroyed in a mysterious fire early mm. that year um, that possibly involved insurance fraud perpetrated Ooh, by corruptions. Uh... Officials. This meeting ended around 6.30. Um, by some accounts, Frankie um, was observed to put on his trench coat, which he wore in the frigid, uh, damp winters of Oregon, <laughs> and left with his briefcase. Uh, although other reports talked about him a, a few minutes after that, talking with an, uh, one of the corrections employees i don't find that it's really clear you know did he go back to his office first or not you know i haven't been able to pin that down in any case this was a regular tuesday staff meeting but he was going to do this big testimony the day the very next day the briefcase that he always carried around contained Files, his laptop, and floppy disks. And one of the things that the podcast reminds you is, in those days, laptops had very little memory, mm-hmm. and most of the information that you would be using on your computer would actually be contained in those floppy disks. That's right. um, yeah. And he always carried this briefcase around. There's plenty of there's news video of Michael Frankie walking, you know, to various you know committee meetings and something in his trench coat, yeah, and his wool cap and his big briefcase stuffed with stuff that looks like a big heavy briefcase. Around 7 p.m., Frankie's office assistant was leaving the building and saw Frankie's car in its usual parking spot and a a circular parking area that's a little over a hundred feet or so from the front of the building. Strangely, the car interior light was on and the driver's side door was open, but nothing appeared to be disturbed in the car. She closed the door, kind of called out for Frankie. This is from She closed the, the door to his
2: car? She mm-hmm. closed
1: it and called out to him. This is from the podcast and I'm just going to quote something right. else that gives a little more of a different account of this. She said she felt there was something really creepy about it. He wasn't anywhere to be seen. You know, remember, it's dark by this time. You know, it, this is in January January, and she called the building superintendent, I believe. The, the way she describes it is that she was alone when this happened, and then she. I went home and she felt really uneasy about it. Other events ensued after that, which I'll get into. Um, from Wikipedia, I found this description and I have relied on Wikipedia also, I should say now and then, just to kind of get a kind of summation. All of the things I've seen in this Wikipedia are present in news stories and I've seen. To- um, it, yeah, and it's, it's heavily referenced. Okay. Um, but it's just it was easy for me. This is such a complicated yeah, strong story. Yeah. It's just helped summarize some yeah, things. Okay. So the way they describe it there is. Was two staffers, and this is the way in multiple sources they say there were two people, um, unnamed, found the, the car. You know, and what maybe one of them was her, but she in the podcast talks about it as though she was alone when right. this happened. And all the other sources say have two staffers coming out of the building seeing Frankie's car the do- the, you know, the light inside the car right. is on because the the door is, is open. They locked and closed the door returned to the building which is called the Dome Building. Um, I'll explain that in a moment. Where they made numerous phone calls to other senior staffers in an effort to determine Frankie's whereabouts. All to no avail. Security was no- notified at the nearby communication center and the staffers left the Dome Building at approximately 8:05 p.m. Two other senior staffers, Richard Peterson, head of institutions in the Corrections Department, he was basically actually the second in command to Michael Frankie. and David Colley, who was the head of planning and budget uh, for the Corrections Department, hmm. arrived at approximately 8:35 p.m and conducted what they described as a meticulous search of the dome building but found nothing amiss. They returned to their homes on the presumption that Frankie was at a dinner engagement. Hmm. Police were never notified of the situation until a guard discovered the body nearly four Ah. hours later. So a a security guard on his usual rounds found Michael Frankie's body about, I think it was like 12.42 a.m. It was laying sprawled in front of the door um, that was on a side portico that was along the front of the building. And so I just want to explain the layout of the building yeah. because I found this really, really yes, thank confusing. You. Yes.
2: You know, it's funny, one thing when I was listening, especially the first few episodes of the Murder in Oregon podcast, I kept saying to myself, like the two guys who were supposed to go and look for him and didn't, wouldn't you logically, if you were told his car door was open, start with the car?
1: Yeah. And, and yes. look around. And look at the most and when you see the layout, oh, yeah. Yeah, it is really kind of puzzling. Yeah. This is a big, one of the big puzzles. Why didn't they find the body if he was killed in the way that they said he should, his body, where it was found, should have been Relatively easy to discover. So the building is a nice old 1912 building. Uh I guess you would call it Palladian Classical. It has a shallow dome in the middle part Mm. of the building. So it um, is called the Dome Building. It was part of the... Oregon State Hospital Complex, and in fact, at the time, and I think this is still the case, the state hospital building still surrounded it, but for a number of years, this building, and it still is actually being used as offices for the Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. So there's a main entrance with a a covered stairway that goes up into the main middle part of the building. On either side of that main entrance, there are porticos that run along the front, Um, and That, uh, I'm
2: glad you cleared that up because I was picturing a side right. around the corner. When I was listening to like, you, yeah, I
1: guess the I first, knows. I was right. thinking they kept talking about a side door where he was found. And I kept picturing a real side, like around, yes, around so a different the side, side of the right. building corner. and yeah. some really out-of-the-way alcove right. or something. But this is actually the front of the building. Now, the porticos are deep set. Um, They're covered. They have heavy balustrades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And each one on either side of the main part of the building has its own stairway. The okay. Yeah. going up. Um, relatively short, so it looks like maybe 10 Now is that
2: a photo because it looks like yeah, a that's a photo from the I am showing a photo that is of look? the
1: morning okay. that yeah, the, like the body was found. Is there. one of those
2: cars his? I don't that think that looks so. Like no. cop,
1: car, it was a yeah. white yeah. sedan that was a state it was a state right. vehicle. So it could
0: be that one. But right. I can no, show you. No
1: that looks like a cop. The picture, okay, but this is on the portico. So what, if the door that he was found in front of if you go up the stairs that lead up to the portico and you're kind of facing the front of the building head on. You look to the left at the end of the portico there is the door that actually led directly into the part of the building where Michael Frankie's office was. Oh, I see. So, so this he is, came out that this door. is the entrance yeah. that was closest to his office from where he usually parked his car and his assistant his office assistant said that he that day was going in and out and in and out of that door. Mm-hmm. Um, my impression from a couple of sources was that usually that door was locked and he would have had a key. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure however if that's really true so some people have made a lot about the fact that no key to the door was found on him but maybe it really wasn't locked until right. after hours. Right, because
2: so. because in the podcast they said that by the time he left that night, the building was
1: locked up. Right. Now I'm showing a picture of a diagram. Oh, shoot, it's really small. A picture of a diagram. <laughs> Sorry, Yeah, that it's is really small. <laughs> I, I didn't realize it saved really small. But you can see a diagram that basically shows the building. And mm-hmm. then there's a circular drive. drive. Just, yeah, no, this, this I is, can't. No, it's
2: because um, somebody used a web picture yeah uh, i know and i am but the people who are listening can't see it anyway so yeah
1: i know but what it shows is a uh, a circular drive in front of the main part of the building and then just sort of to the side and a little offset from that portico is another circular drive that has parking spaces on it Uh and in that and it's about his car would have been approximately a hundred feet uh, was approximately 100 feet from the steps yeah. of that portico, right. um, that side portico that he went up. Um, and here's another picture at night. That's the the main drive start. that was like, yeah, right so in front of the building, dark. and then the yeah. parking area where yeah. his car was parked is to the side of that. And then here there, there's a uh, side portico yeah, in the so side, they didn't so, see so he would have been parked yet. over here, sorry, right? But still, um, and walked had to kind of go across this lawn and up, and then right. and then. But still, if you're, you're looking
2: door. for somebody and their car's there, and you've been told the door to the car was open, it seems to me it would be logical to say, okay, here's his car, let's circle around yeah, and he, I, I would walk up there, but that's yeah. just me.
1: So that's the the layout where the body was, in fact, very close to where the his parked car was. It seems odd, and this is something, this is still one of the things I think is one of the most troubling, was why was it not until hours later? Why weren't these two officials, who were supposedly looking all through the building, mm-hmm. not able to see this body? And there was broken glass because he had gotten to the door. There were multi-paned, there was a multi-paned window. He was on the front of the building. Right. But now, can you, you, you but. may be
2: getting to this, but let me ask you in the, in that podcast, it said that the two guys who went to find him, like one of them went to his own office and did some work and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. then they went like and looked in Frankie's office to see if he was right. there. And so it wasn't
1: like this strategic.
2: Sir, right. It
1: sounded like it was pretty informal. I kind of wonder, well, why don't you have security guards or right. something do it? Why are these top officials in the department doing it? But may, for all I know, it's not clear to me. Maybe could they still right. have been in the building? I don't, right. th- I don't think so. And, and but
2: one thing we found too, like whenever you do stories for something that happened like thirty or forty years ago, and you're trying to rely on newspapers and stuff, it's like so many details are lost, and then things kind of
1: morph into these right. other
2: narratives, and it's very hard to know.
1: One of the the things when Mm -hmm. the podcast is describing these two guys meandering around the building, I don't know what they're basing that on, where they could just kind of ask in an informal way, oh, where did you look for him? And they, you know, so I, you know, I really don't know what... They really did. Yeah. Did they make a
0: decision, we're going to look for him, or did they just say, we're just going to see, see. since we're around, we're going to just see if he's around. No, they
1: they went went there to look for him. They They went there to look for for him, and they did say they did a meticulous search, but one of the things, my question is, sometimes it's described as a search of the grounds. If That that implies going around the outside, in which case they should have found him, Mm. or maybe they just searched inside, and especially if they didn't go down to that exterior uh, you know, okay. to that entrance down the hallway, they might not have seen the broken right. glass. I don't know. Um, and and but, I can
2: say, too, as a former newspaper editor, that sometimes reporters use words that don't describe something accurately, and nobody notices or cares, mm-hmm. and then here you are 30 whatever years later, you know, grounds may have just been used very loosely in some newspaper story. right.
1: And, right. The and it becomes the standard right. way it's described. So anyways, Frankie was found sprawled. Uh, at the bottom of the door, the position of his body indicated that he may have sat down on the ground, uh-huh. like cross-legged, after trying to get uh-huh. in the door and then fallen over. As he bled to death. Yeah he, yeah. Was yeah. yeah, he had been stabbed in the heart, uh-huh. had defensive wounds on his hands, had some sort of abrasion on his head and bruising on his leg and knee. He was wearing his suit no sign of his trench coat. And as I haven't seen anything that mentions that his trench coat was found. So again, that's one of the weird things. There are a bunch yeah. of missing things. So if he, in fact, was going out to go home, he would have had his trench yeah. coat on mm-hmm. um, and he would have had his briefcase with him. However, if he had, in fact, come back to his office and was working late in his office and for some reason either was attacked in his office or came out without his trench coat on to maybe run to his car and grab something, that would explain why his trench coat wouldn't be here, but it wouldn't explain why his trench coat and briefcase Case were never found in his office, as far as anyone can tell. Right. I haven't heard of the trench coat being ever being found anywhere, nor the briefcase has ever been found. So those are kind of two big kind of odd things. Hmm. He had his watch and his wallet on him, which is one of the things that makes people doubt. So the car thief, because it seems like if it was a robbery, they would have taken the opportunity right. to... Why would they have just taken off in the car? They were trying right, to steal That's I, if I yeah. thought yeah. if it was a go. car thief,
2: then... Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe
1: they... they. I think part of the prosecution was, well, this was a, just a petty thief who just panicked, you right. know, and he also had his pager on and it was turned off. Frankie's staff and friends, uh, you know, he always had that on. There was no blood near the car, uh, which when security found it was closed and the doors were locked in those so staffers almost certainly were the ones who did that yeah. when they found it cuz they said they did and friends and staffers also confirmed that Frankie almost always used his car to alarm which was a state of the art for the time drops of blood did appear on the lawn about midway between the car and the portico and then on the steps of the portico um that coin 6 news footage shows actually blood splotches oh, on the mm-hmm. on the steps um you know from the morning you know when the news was you know was there. Uh, there were blood spatters on the door, that exterior door he had tried to get into, and bloody footprints near the, enough fingerprints, I'm sorry, bloody fingerprints near the doorknob, and the painted glass, which was broken. Um, it looks like he did in fact do that. No one's ever disputed that because it looks like it was broken from the outside. His blood spattered glasses were found near his body. There was no sign of the briefcase, as I said, that he always carried with him. His car keys were found near the portico as though they'd been thrown. Again, you know, the state police theory was that he was going to his car to leave, came upon a car thief, challenged the car thief, got into a struggle with him, somehow got stabbed, made his way to the door, tried to get in, maybe remember no cell phones in those days to get to a phone or to find somebody who might still be around. The security guard found the portico light off. Usually it would have been turned on, in fact, probably earlier in the evening, the security guard, when it got dark, you know, probably even while, you know, before the building was shut down because it would have gotten dark early in January in Oregon, um, it would have, it should have been on, in mm-hmm. other words, but it was found turned off. Hmm. There another decision that was made that seems unfortunate. The decision was made to delay assessing the crime scene until daylight. Hmm. Um, so this is all found, you know, close to 1 a.m. So there's several hours where, Somebody although they could've... have crime tape up, and I assume there were... There were officers guarding but, the scene, yeah. I'm assuming, mm-hmm. I don't know, I haven't, you know, in the podcast they make a lot of the fact that the crime scene was not assessed until later and there were sort of claims. That that that's kind
2: of funny, a major, a major state official is killed and they, ah, we'll wait till morning.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there are some questions, um, these are some of the biggest questions about the crime scene and that whole thing. Why didn't uh, Peterson and others find him when they searched for him? Did he have this briefcase with him? And if so, why w- wasn't it found and if he didn't have it with him why was it found elsewhere? If he was attacked yeah, near the car, he? Um, and he had, you know, his the fatal wound was a stab to the heart, which indi- would have indicated quite a loss of blood. His body was in a pool of, blo- of his own blood mm-hmm. when he was found. Why was there no blood near the car? And if there was a car thief, why was there no sign of forcible entry of the car? Why was the car alarm turned off? And why was, yeah, yeah. why was the car still there? Yeah, why was the car still there? So who was Michael Frankie? I'll give a little bit of background on him. He had, uh, I'm not going to get into this early. He history, um, but he had ended up in New Mexico uh, as head of the corrections department there. He had a background as a lawyer. He'd been a judge for a while. He had what was considered at the time a kind of unusual job for someone who was head of corrections. In those days, it would usually be someone who'd been a prison warden who would get that position. But he came from the somewhat different background. He was something of a real reform-minded uh, official. He really believed that the real answer to crime Prevention was early childhood education, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, more investment in the living quality of people. Um, he believed in rehabilitation. He came into this position in New Mexico when it was rife with problems. One of the worst prison riots had occurred in their system, you know, and he came in as head. I think he actually worked in the department when this riot took place and then was made head of corrections shortly after the riot. And it was a huge thing. So he did, made, really made his reputation I'm really kind of cleaning up and rectifying a lot of the worst problems in New Mexico's Department of Correction. So uh, what happens in Oregon is in Oregon is having its own problems with Department of Corrections. In 1986, there was an investigation done by the state Police that uncovered pretty systematic corruption and problems in Oregon's Department of Corrections. This was under Governor Vic Itea. And apparently this report didn't get a whole lot of publicity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. although it uncovered things like drug smuggling, theft of state property, unwarranted release, temporary release of prisoners Mm -hmm. and using prisoners for like you know, to do like officials gardening and things <laughs> like that that were just unwarranted. Um Only a few low-level officials were fired. You know, there was some rearranging of supervisors and things. And it sounds like it didn't get a whole lot of publicity, but it was well known within state government circles. Then Neil Goldschmidt is elected governor. I don't know how many people know this. He was, and still is in a way, a very legendary figure in Oregon history. He is one of a number of more progressive types I don't see anymore. And he had been a kind of really innovative uh, mayor of Portland. And then he'd worked for Nike for a while. And then he ran for governor. And he was kind of seen as this kind of big new star in politics at the time. It looks like, you know, problems with corruption and the Department of Corrections weren't really being uh, attended to. And so he hires Michael Frankie from New Mexico in 1987 to come in and, you know, clean up Oregon's Department of Corrections. The Senate confirms Frankie in June of that year. He officially takes over, and one of the changes that they make to the position of Department of Corrections, the head, was that he would answer directly to the governor instead of to the Human Resources Department, which is where before that the head of the corrections would report wow. to.
2: It's kind of funny reporting to the head of HR when you're and other Department of Corrections.
1: So from 1987 up until his death, Michael Frankie is dealing with trying to clean house. He's dealing with restructuring the department. One of the things that begins to be a problem is that there are huge cost overruns. And in fact, and this was the case I think nationwide in those days. The crime rate was much higher than it is now. There were all these mandatory sentencing guidelines yeah. that have come into play. Um there were huge numbers of people being convicted and imprisoned for crimes. And basically the prison system in Oregon had twice as many inmates as it was designed to carry. Yeah. And you know, there are all these problems with cost overruns and everything. And The supporters of the official story, like the Oregonian, in news articles, you know, basically said that, you know, the real problem with Frankie is that, me he was possibly really screwing up and he was under huge pressure. And his testimony that day, you know, where he ended up being murdered was really about, you know, him having to account for these cost overruns and um, how, you know, what was going on with the budget of the Department of Corrections. And so anyway, so there's all this kind of... Public tumult over the state of the Department of Corrections when Michael Frankie died. Um, one of the things, though, that you hear is from uh, Michael Frankie's brothers, uh, Pat and Kevin. Before his death, um, he had told several family members that he was doing, or according to them, I sh- should say, uh, they claim he told them he was doing a top secret investigation into drug trafficking and other corruption in the Oregon prison system. He planned to name several. High level officials. Mm-hmm. There was um, on the unsolved mysteries segment, for instance, um, they had a former prison guard who claimed, you know, that he saw all these things like drugs being smuggled in mm-hmm. and weapons and other things. He says that Michael Frankie actually interviewed him and a number of others in an investigation that was as much about corruption as it was about these cost overruns. And in fact, I think if for those who support the corruption angle, Frankie was going to argue that part of the cost ones was in fact related to corruption. Mm. That they were like padding the books, oh, overcharging for things like the the warehouse that burned. It looks like the building, and also there was a claim that all kinds of expensive furniture was in it that mm. there's no record of there actually being. Uh-huh. And, they, and it was a nearly one million insurance claim they filed. And so, you know, um, so for those who are conspiracy minded, the whole. Cost overrun thing is actually related to the corruption and the thing that he was about trying drugs to not
0: It's not like it's a wild claim. It's something that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Michael Frankie's sister-in-law, um, I think she is uh, the ex-wife of his brother Kevin. She was also interviewed on this Unsolved Mystery segment. Um, she said that he was planning to go before the legislature and in his words, clean house. Uh, you know, he said that basically, you know, there are heads who were going to roll. Um, oh. and, uh, and all of them, uh, the brothers in particular claim that he showed a lot of signs of inordinate stress. One of the brothers said that when he visited him at his Oregon home, he had guns everywhere. Mm-hmm. There were spent shells on the patio as so though he'd been practicing. And he said, in fact, he'd been practicing and he, he had, he claimed that he was getting death threats and he was not, uh, kind of, apparently a kind of, gun obsessed person and this was unusual that he would have as many guns that he was practicing a lot of shooting. To them. Right. The Oregonian dispelling all of this note that Frankie was going through a divorce at this time. His wife and small children were no longer living with him, so he was alone in his house. They had financially overextended themselves. He was under extreme pressure from Goldschmidt. Goldschmidt, who had really uh saw him as his golden boy when he mm. hired him, seemingly was disenchanted with him. And so they said all of this stress, if he was doing all these things, it might have been him like acting out due to all these other stressors that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with maybe being really having his life endangered. But, you know, there are various ways you can interpret these things, um, including, as the Oregonian has kind of hinted, possibly the Frankie brothers are exaggerating or misremembering some of this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they apparently have been a bit inconsistent in their descriptions of his mm-hmm. behavior, Michael Frankie's behavior, in the weeks before he was killed.
2: Although, in their defense, or... Um, Just, again, knowing from working for newspapers, their inconsistencies may be the result of how things they said were quoted or interpreted or what was quoted and what wasn't. I mean, you can say a bunch of different things about a person, and it can sound like you're being inconsistent because certain things are stressed and other things are Mm stressed,
1: too. Right. Um, One of the things that both brothers assert is that both Richard Peterson, who was basically the deputy to Michael Frankie in the Department of Corrections, and Scott McAllister, um, who I think was legal counsel. Um, I have to apologize. I didn't totally reestablish what his position was, but he was closely associated with the Department of Corrections. I think it was his legal counsel. Yeah, he was some um, lawyer. He was a lawyer for the department, basically, that he had said that without getting into details, that both of these officials in the department were a problem for him in one way or another. And there were other staffers who were inter- interviewed, for instance, in some of those COIN6 interviews. Some some of these interviews were years later, indicated that it seemed like there was a falling out between particularly McAllister and Michael Frankie, and that they've been friendly up to a certain point, and then something happened, and Michael Frankie really was unhappy, particularly with McAllister. So, you know, there are various kind of various sources who indicate that McAllister, by the way, always has asserted he's still alive. I think he's practicing law in Arizona now. Has always said there was never any problems between the two of them. Everything, oh, was, everything fine. was great. Um, one of the things about McAllister, though, was that he did resign from his position. Two weeks before Michael Frankie was killed. And that was surprising to many people who thought that he, in fact, kind of hoped to get Michael Frankie's position oh. at some point. And then a couple weeks after Michael Frankie was killed, he left the state of Oregon and began working in the Department of Corrections in Utah. Later, I'll talk about some other interesting things mm, that arise yeah. er- about him. Uh, so the big question, the corruption angle is like, important to me in my mind, it's sort of like the big question if you in the JFK assassination conspiracy theories. you know, if you really don't think there's any evidence that JFK was going to end the war in Vietnam and do these other things, then the really the motive, the big motive supposedly for this big conspiracy doesn't really exist yeah. so the big thing is like, Was Frankie really... Did he really uncover really extensive and serious corruption? And was that what he was going to expose the next day? Or you know, is that not really what it was all about? And there really wasn't that much corruption, and that really wasn't what he was going to testify on. And it's sort of how you fall on that question kind of determines whether or not you find the conspiracy theory. The prosecution, the official story is always like, well, there really wasn't that much corruption. And he was not going to testify about that. So there's no reason for anyone to have him killed and this big kind of conspiracy and cover-up. So that's the big question. Well, my question is, as
0: somebody that I haven't listened to the podcast, and I only know you know hardly anything about this case was there ever any corruption uncovered later
1: well actually I'm glad you asked okay. that yeah. huh? because during the investigation of Michael Frankie, there were in fact all kinds of rumors swirling around Neil Goldschmidt some people find this suspicious too and I'll talk about Neil Goldschmidt in a little bit um, Neil Goldschmidt is in the, you know saying okay you, everyone thinks this is something to do with corruption. It wasn't just a car thief. and uh, He says, well, I think, you know, people have to either put up or shut up. So I'm going to have this task force, um, and have them do an investigation and look into corruption and see if there's actually significant corruption and put this thing to, to rest one way or another. Cause if there is no significant corruption, then, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. it's just a, you know, just something that's made up. And so he, in 1989, you know, shortly after, you know, a few months after the murder, he convened a task force, a retired judge whose last name was Warden, interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, I think, like, especially I think of the Warren Report as well as Warden of Prisons, you know. Um, And he was an independent independent investigator. He conducted a several-months-long investigation, and the report uh, was made public where he actually found corruption and wrongdoing that was rampant throughout the Department of Corrections, Mm -hmm. said that there were at least 15 officials... Who were directly implicated in this but did not publicly name any of them. Mm. Um, and there doesn't seem to have been any substantive impact of this report, mm. um, which seems like odd too. <laughs> um, and the, a lot of the documentation of this report and the 1986 corruption investigation that got a lot less publicity, apparently a lot of the documents for both of those had never been publicly released. Mm. So, so you know, so that's kind of weird. Um, and so it seems like there was corruption. I, the whole point is though, to what extent? Well, How many high officials? Well, and the other thing is, know. too, if there was corruption
2: that maybe Frankie didn't even know about and people were afraid he might have found yes. out and he's saying, I'm cleaning house, blah, 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 and they're thinking, holy shit, what if he yeah. found out about blah, right, blah, right. blah? He, he doesn't have to necessarily have been ready to, to testify about something right, right, exactly. for people to want for to shut him
1: up. That's exactly, that's a good point. And so, to my mind, it's like, now, no documentation connected with Frankie has ever emerged that shows that he had all kinds of goods on people Mm -hmm. or that he was ready to give this testimony. And in fact, even some of these staffers in the podcast who are interviewed talk about how they had a bad feeling and they knew... He wasn't getting along with Peterson and he wasn't getting along with McAllister. But none of them have anything really substantive to say, well, I know for a fact. I, and Frankie showed me all these documents right. that showed, you know, that McAllister was running a drug ring. Right. None of them have anything like that and nothing like that's ever been found. My mind as well, was documentation like that destroyed? Yeah. That's um, not, well, he might not necessarily have told but, other people. Uh, right, exactly. Or was he keeping the lid on it because he didn't want to... Right let word leak out or in danger if he thought he was in danger other like some of his staffers and his assistants and things Um, or did it just really not exist and all the corruption thing is kind of like a lot of nothing so there are all these alternative investigations one of the things that happened in the aftermath though and again this is like what's the original source for this how much verification of there is they make a big deal of it in the podcast is that there apparently was a lot of documents from Frankie's office shredded in the days after the murder when it should have been a crime scene Scene that was uh-huh. kept untouched. And one of the kind of catchphrases was that at least 23 bags of shredded materials coming out of that office in the days after the murder. And again, I don't know how reliable yeah, who, that right, report is. Who, where, did where did that, did that originate? Yeah. You know, sort of these mysterious you know, employees in the building have saw this happen. And, right. and I don't know. So this is one of the big unresolved um, questions. So in terms of the investigation, here are some of the big points. The autopsy. They talk about this stab wound that was the lethal wound. Wound, and then talk about abrasions on his head and some other secondary wounds. The brother, Kevin Frankie had great difficulty getting the autopsy report, according to him. And when he did get it, he claims that over 80% of it was redacted. Mm. They then eventually, I think, got a more full autopsy report. Uh, but they want to know, like, why was it so difficult to get the report? Why was their original... Copy that I got so heavily redacted. They feel that the autopsy really plays down in the crime scene. I've only seen the full body before the door in a very blurred photo that is like on a you know, news broadcast. I haven't been able to find online an actual clear photo. I don't know if I really want to see it. I do have one that only shows the body from the waist down. But uh, he says there's visible in the crime photo a, a really significant head wound that looks like he was clubbed over the head. The brothers think, and Phil Stanford thinks, that the wounds on Frankie indicate a struggle with more than one person where possibly he was held while being clubbed or or beaten and then ultimately he gets stabbed. And
2: wasn't he a big, strong, athletic he, guy? Yes.
1: He was an athletic guy. He was close to 6'4". Mm, you look at pictures wow. of him and he looks very much a mild mannered guy with glasses and he was clearly a kind of brainy, even maybe nerdy guy, but he was also quite athletic. He was big. He was strong. He was young. He was only 42 when he was killed. And a lot of people knew him, felt that certainly in a kind of one on one encounter uh, he would uh, have an advantage yeah. um, so that's one thing then there was some witness testimony a custodian named whose last name was hunsecker was outside he says was outside the building the night, um, that this, you know, that Frankie was murdered around seven or a little after seven, walking towards his own car, heard behind him a gasp, like someone being punched in the stomach. Uh. He turned and he saw two men in front of the building and kind of where Frankie's car would have been in my impression of this is, is kind of behind them, you know, um, on the other side of the two men. They were just in a kind of momentary kind of face off where they were facing one another. One, turned around and ran away. The other walked back leisurely to the building. Um, oh, yeah. Later, Hunsaker sort of changed the man going back to the building to a hurried pace, a hurried mm-hmm. pace, and in subsequent testimony. And he also at some point says that the taller man who wore a, w- wore a trench coat was the one who ran away. So I haven't, again, been able to kind of sort out the different... Versions that Hunsaker gives. So, what did he see? It and, seems and we what, all know
0: that
2: witness testimony, right?
0: You're also effective. relying on someone's notes of their interview with a witness, right?
1: Another account: eyewitness who supposedly was driving by around that time says he saw several men running towards a V away from the building towards a VW van, and this became part of in that Oval, hippie. 1991 unsolved right. yeah. mysteries thing where they proposed there's always a, mystery a theory, van. a theory that I think Phil Stanford was pushing at that point of um he possibly was abducted by a group who were you know basically being paid um, to get rid of him and was abducted somewhere and killed somewhere else and then either his body was dumped or this group confronts Frankie they start beating him up somehow he gets stabbed they run away because that wasn't the way it was supposed to happen and he you know staggers up the steps right but it, the, the killed door.
2: somewhere but, else dumped thing doesn't account for doesn't the broken window right right they, it rivers. seems
1: pretty clear that whatever happened yeah. he wounded he wounded goes up the steps yes. and, and, that seems pretty clear no one's really contested that in any way yeah there's
2: always a van with a bunch of mysterious like Lacey peterson and everything right well here's
1: another another mysterious van there are also reports by more than one person employee in the dome building of a mysterious man in a pinstripe suit he's good looking olive complexioned with a mustache one staffer says that this guy After hours, when most of the people were gone from the building, kind of suddenly approaches (laughs) her in the hallway, asks for, I think, the parole um, office. And she directs him that way, and then she's thinking, after hours, he... Some, a member of the public should not be in here. Other people in the building said they saw a similar looking man earlier in the day who claimed to be there to repair the copy machine. In his pinstripe um, suit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he was wearing the pinstripe suit at that time, but his physical description was similar. He was kind of youngish guy, late twenties, early thirties, good looking, olive complexioned, uh, black hair, mustache. And police did a photo, I mean, a composite portrait, um, not a photo, sorry. A later, a repairman emerged to say, yeah, I was the Copy repair guy, Mm -hmm. but the staffer said that copy repair guy didn't look anything like the guy they saw. And then after the Mm -hmm. murder, they when they returned to the building, there it was reported that the copy machine had been dismantled and not put back together again; had never been repaired. But somebody had been possibly looking like they should have been a repairman, kind of taking it apart hmm so <laughs> i just had all these parts left over. could all be right. a fake repairman if i was a repairman i would or know. the guy who fixed my laptop <laughs> so a couple things pop up in the investigation one is a small-time correct drug dealer in salem named tim natividad the big thing that kind of brings him kind of into this whole thing is that when the composite picture of this mysterious man in the pinstripe suit is put on the news tim natividad's girlfriend Elizabeth Godlove, sees the picture and thinks that really looks like Tim. (laughs) Uh, She then goes to, I'm not sure exactly who, I think maybe someone in the state police, to say that he had come back late that night that Frankie was murdered uh, with a couple of wounds, Mm -hmm. one on his head, one on his hand, um, Natividad was abusive, um, and Godlove killed him two weeks after the Franklin ah. murder. She shot him and was acquitted because of, she claimed self-defense and that and, there was and a... And by the way, daddy. that's my
2: favorite episode of that podcast. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. And I'm yeah. not going to get in all But he was the, a dangerous, violent he guy. He was a def- dangerous, violent guy. Who did bad things um, for people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so, um, and, but he was also good looking, mm-hmm. well-dressed, could present quite Yes, he, he was a psychopath. he was a charmer mm-hmm. you know he was definitely kind classic. of a classic psychopath. So he gets killed two weeks after the Frankie murder by her. She's acquitted because um it's uh, you know the, the jury believes that she did it in self defense. You know, it's one of these defenses yeah I think it was less common defense back yeah. then. But she then when she sees news story about the man in the pinstripe suit she thinks it looks like Natividad. Interestingly enough later nineteen ninety four she marries Kevin Frankie. Mm-hmm. So mm, the morning. Oregonian story I've read there was a big one in two thousand and five so well there was a big one in two thousand five where they reevaluated the whole conspiracy thing and they came out in support of an official story. One of the things they said is that, is Kevin Frankie kind of has, has kind of so immersed himself into this kind of Salem underworld, you know, that it, in his obsessive way that he's kind of totally lost any perspective mm. on his brother's murder and, you know, it is a little weird. Well, you know? the way
2: the podcast describes it is, is she didn't get a lot of Reaction from the police right, on her true. report and she went, she went to Kevin right, Frankie yeah. and he had lost his brother and nobody cared and nobody was listening to him and at this point he had moved to Portland. She wasn't being listened to. She was going through this awful right. thing, yeah. and they were two people in a lot of pain who nobody understood who kind of
1: bonded, bonded and yeah. I don't
2: think that's that weird
1: no, no, or mysterious No, no, that's thing. not weird, but the Oregonian kind of made right. it seem like it was a kind I mean, of... Did they ask that? <laughs> a reflection of his kind of obsessive, you yeah. know, um, perhaps... You know, Gee, his unbalanced. brother was murdered and he he doesn't get any satisfaction on it. No, I think I think emotionally it, it doesn't seem unusual at all. Yeah. So Tim Natividad is this figure that keeps popping up and, and then there's Frank Gable, the man who ultimately is convicted and up until last this past July had served nearly thirty years in prison. For this crime. A year or more after the murder, an anonymous tip led investigators to Frank Gable. Um, He's a petty thief, a meth dealer, and an addict. A witness had come forward claiming that he had seen Gable breaking into Michael's car on the night of the murder. And the way this witness describes it, Michael had apparently come out of the office and found Gable in his car. That's kind of interesting detail. According to the witness, the two struggled. And Michael was stabbed. Then Gable grabbed the briefcase and fled. And Michael, you know, went up to the side porch where he collapsed and died. Witnesses reportedly placed Gable in and around the area around the time of the murder. A maintenance worker witnessed a man matching Gable's description, running away from the murder scene, you know, sometime between 7 and 8. Another witness, a friend, Claimed that a few hours after the murder he had he gave this friend something in a bag and told him to throw the bag into a nearby river. The friend believed that the bag had clothing and another object in it. I'm thinking the trench coat and the, you know, it's this is a legitimate story, uh-huh. right? Um and the friend threw the bag into the river. Several witnesses also claimed that Gable had confessed to the murder. He allegedly threatened some witnesses that he would kill them and their families if they went to the police. Furthermore, his wife claimed that he liked knives and he was abusive hmm. towards her. Um, and so, Gable was arrested and charged and with my. Now, Smith.
2: wasn't he a much smaller man?
1: Than uh, yeah, Michael I think Cranky. so. I, f- I forgot to From check the podcast, his eyes. Yeah,
2: he was a skinny little pipsqueak of a guy. And the feeling is that Michael Frankie, who was a very strong, big, physical person, would not have suffered the injuries. Yeah. Even if somebody snuck a knife into him, if they were like struggling by the car like that, Michael Frankie easily would have gotten the better of him. Especially if it happened in the way that
1: the officials described, where where Gable is in the car. Right. So
2: somebody's yeah. Right. And he's like, you know, he's like
1: messing around in the glove box or something, and then and then um, Michael. would have the advantage. Yeah, it would have the advantage. So, um, one of these witnesses was a local teen runaway named Jody Swearingen, who testified before Could the she gr-
0: see, like, like that? Uh, sorry. Yeah. I was thinking of the one that we did, the, uh, the girl that said she saw somebody, but her sight was. Right. She was she like was a blind. teenage runaway. yeah.
1: yeah. Well, the teenage, yeah, the She was blind. A teenage yeah. runaway. Yeah. She testified before the grand jury that she had witnessed the murder and it was oh, front table. Where were all these people when it happened? I know. Well, there's a weird story that the official story had where she was with this other guy and... They either had driven, I this is part of the podcast I needed to review that I didn't have time to review, mm-hmm. they'd either driven to the crime scene, or were, happened to be outside the building for some reason, in a car, and saw Gable do it, mm-hmm. or maybe somehow had driven him and there. it's or, dark, it's yeah. 7, it's yeah.
2: yeah. 6.30, yeah. Uh, anyways, yeah. I don't want to get into right, those details, because right, right. I
1: didn't have a chance to review that part right. of the podcast and also, yeah, that right. gets into the details of it, so I'm trying to keep right. it simple. Yes. A local teen runaway named Jody Swearingen testified before a grand jury that she had witnessed the murder and she named Frank Gable as the person who was the perpetrator. On the stand at Frank Gable's trial she actually recanted her testimony. No. She testified for the defense and she named another sale drug dealer Tim Natividad as the mm-hmm. actual guy oh. who she claimed she actually had some sort of sexual relationship with uh, even though he was with the southern girl. Well, yeah, friend, he know. fooled around a lot. I yeah. just looked at a uh, picture
0: of him and the mugshot of the pinstripe guy and they did look quite. They do look I quite. I mean not the mugshot yeah. the uh, artist rendering. Right, the, right. Yeah. On June 27th,
1: 1991, Gable was convicted of 6 counts of aggravated murder. These six counts, basically, I don't really understand this. Apparently, represent the v- various theories of how it happens. The <laughs> prosecution <laughs> offered, but she's—I mean, I find this odd. But anyways, and one count of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of oh, parole. Geez. Um, he has always he always maintained his innocence throughout the whole thing, though he could not give a consistent. This is another one of the things mm, he has never really been able to give a consistent story about where he was. What was I
2: supposed to say? Yeah, he had very, and that
1: also can be explainable, especially if you're like drug doubt you know well put it this life. way or, well, well, or no, no it, it depends th- on when or it happens.
2: put it this way especially they, if you don't have a regular schedule and stuff if somebody asks you months later right. where were you yeah, when, you're gonna not necessarily going to remember and he wasn't arrested. I wouldn't remember he
1: wasn't arrested and questioned about this until like well over a year after yeah, the murder. so who's so, going to remember yeah. I mean I wouldn't even where were remember where were you January 17th interested. last year yeah. huh? in October 2014 the federal public defender's office sought to reopen the case on appeal this is what ultimately resulted in a federal judge, Acosta, ruling um, in April of this year that the Gable's case had to either be, you know, he had to be either released or retried by the state of Oregon because of all these problems with the trial. At the trial, the state produced several witnesses, all of whom were criminal associates of Gable, Hmm. who claimed that Gable confessed to the crime after the fact. As I said, was ended up testifying for the defense and basically claimed that no, it was not Gable that she saw right... There on the stand, oh, um, she by Perry the way, moment. And, and also no physical evidence was produced that tied Gable to the crime scene. Now, some of the skeptics of the conspiracy theory say, "Well, that's not unusual, especially if it was a quick and momentary yeah. encounter." Although uh, nowadays they could have, if look, check the
2: car for touch DNA. Right, and, right, and
1: yeah. Later, I think it was around 2014 or 15. Maybe it was part of this um, federal defense, you know, effort that ultimately. Got him released recently. They actually did test for DNA and they basically said the DNA. Test what? There was, there were some fibers. I think there was at least like a hair that couldn't have been Frankie's either on his body or somewhere. It sounds like it was inconclusive, but the defense basically said it basically did not tie Gable yeah. to the crime. So um so Jodie swearingen is an interesting she's she's the person that Angelina Jolie um plays <laughs> uh, in. So funny. she's kind of a major factor here. You know, she names Gable on the grand jury testimony, kind of recant's on the stand in the trial. Um she apparently had undergone more than twenty polygraph exams. Her story changed number twenty three they said
2: on the podcast um, her, I'm going to
1: quote the coin Six uh, Broken Dome story here. <laughs> her changing stories were a clear target for prosecutor Sarah Moore during her closing argument swearingen testified, she told the grand jury she had seen Gable stab Frankie because she'd been threatened by police to play along. Moore disagreed. Uh, Moore said two months before police had an opportunity to interview her, she's telling people at Hillcrest, I think that was a juvenile facility, a juvenile mm. reform school kind of facility, that she was there with Frank Gable. And she saw him kill Michael Frankie, Moore told reporters when asked about swearingen after Gable was convicted. But did she? Police notes of those conversations of staff that staff at Hillcrest had with Swearingen reported she admitted to being at the scene of the murder that night with her boyfriend, but not with Frank Gable. And more than 10 pages of police notes, Gable's name doesn't come up once. Mm. One worker at Hillcrest told Coin Six's uh, reporter, Eric Mason, that as best as she could recall, she never heard Swearingen use Gable's name. Because she admitted to being at the scene of the murder, Swearengin was concerned about being charged as an accessory. After Gable was convicted, she sought legal advice and notes from those discussions originally introduced. During Gable's appeals process, Swerchen identified the boyfriend she said she saw killed Michael Frankie, a man named Timothy Ntibeda. Mm. Gable has always claimed that what was really happening was that all these petty crooks were easily led into false testimony through intimidation, multiple use of polygraph tests. Where the police investigators used kind of to piece together a narrative that they thought could convict yeah. Gable. And then he also claimed that he, they did, some of them also were motivated by revenge because he was a state police informant and this was their way of getting back at him. Although the state police claim they cannot find any evidence or documentation that Gable ever was. A informant for the state police. So again, you know, conflicting reports. Right. You know,
2: they are supposed to document their their confidential informants. Some people are on an informal basis right. and aren't documented, and also. If there's corruption, it could... I mean, a lot of stuff was lost in this... Just because someone... How many times have we heard somebody can't find something right, that right, yeah. actually exists? Especially when
1: they want to convict somebody of a crime right. so everybody will shut up and get off the bed. So, so the other big person in this is Jim Krause. It's his confession, which was made months before Frank Gable's trial, that was the thing that seemed to most convince the federal judge... Acosta to rule in Gable's favor. So I'm going to actually quote from an Oregonian article on this, just because it kind of summarizes it in a, you know, kind of easy to digest way. Uh, And this is when, in 2016, when this information about this confession first came to public light. Federal public defenders have argued that John Krause, a Salem man who was on parole for robbery at the time, repeatedly confessed to murdering Oregon Prisons Director Michael Frankie telling numerous law enforcement officials as well as his own mother, brother, and girlfriend (laughs) that he stabbed Frankie when he caught Krauss burglarizing his car on January 17, 1989. Cross's confession, they said, was consistent with the crime scene and autopsy evidence, corroborated by a testimony and considered truthful by an FBI polygrapher who was flown in from out of state to test him. The federal defenders argued that the trial court that convicted Gable improperly excluded Cross's earlier confession mm. to the crime. And court assistant federal public defender Nell Brown played an audio of Cross confessing to his brother during a recorded phone call from jail on April 5th, 1989. He called it just a freak accident, saying he had gotten in Frankie's car and Frankie found him in it and asked him what he was doing. I just tried to hit him where I could knock him out. The next thing I knew, I stabbed the guy. I stabbed him in the heart, in the arm, Kraus told his brother. I didn't intend to kill the guy. The judge said that he read closely law enforcement's interview with Kraus on April 5th, 1989, less than three months after the murder. Krauss confessed to seeing, in quote, stuff in Frankie's car, parked on the grounds of the state hospital, and intended to burglarize it. Krauss described how Frankie confronted him, offering a physical description of Frankie, who in the autopsy was described as six foot three and weighing between 200 and 210 pounds. Krauss said Frankie punched him with significant force and then Krauss stabbed Frankie, detailing where Frankie was stabbed. Frankie's body was discovered... Blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and uh, say he was stabbed twice, once through his arm, that nicked his chest, another wound that penetrated his heart. The level of detail Cross provides is notable for its specificity and the manner in which it's corroborated by the record. The judge says, "How does he know all these details? If you're going to make stuff up, how do you do it in a way that is so consistent with physical evidence and witness testimony?" I think also because it was was only three months after, mm-hmm. right. and the likelihood of a lot of these details um, leaking out. Being out in, right. I don't think all this stuff was out there, a turn Nicholas Kallstrom for the Oregon Department of Justice countered that Krause's confession came after he provided police with at least four different accounts of what occurred. Mm-hmm. He gave very descriptions Aww. of the clothing he wore at the scene as well as the route he took to flee the area. Kallstrom suggested that during the interviews Krauss had with police, the investigator may have sent him information. Yeah. That's him. what makes me And wonder. also, what about
2: the head injuries and stuff? Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I wondered about that, because his story kind of follows along with what the official story was. And with- it, you
2: still wonder how Frankie would have not been able to
1: overpower yeah. somebody. The state could never corroborate Krauss' account of what occurred, according to Kallstrom. Though this is an, an, a good point, too. Assistant Federal Public Defender Mark Allemeyer called it in quotes, a troubling double standard if the state is now arguing that Krause's confession may have been contaminated by investors' question, mm-hmm, yeah. the media of what occurred, but hasn't applied that same standard to other key witnesses who have since recanted the early statements that played Gable at the scene of the crime. Yeah. Yes. That's another big thing that Judge Acosta considered, because basically every major witness, not just Swearingen, but all these different people who sort of said, oh, yeah, he was there, right. or we were there or anything, mm. that basically every major witness who placed Gable at the scene of the crime recanted in the years after his commission. Yeah. sounds so. like
2: there are a lot of people
0: wandering around in the dark at the closed... It's weird. Corrections. Like, kind of, like yeah. I don't know if I missed this, but where is it located? Is it's it, off the street. I mean, not, it's not, not... Yeah, it's, it's not, not like, like, close to yeah. the street. Um, right. It's, it looks, uh, it the, the, the aerial photo yeah,
2: looks yeah. like it's kind and, of, like... And I I if you're driving by in a You're not going to be yeah, hanging I, out I there. Think, yeah,
1: there's not a main road that is right there in front of the building. So, There's another state hospital building kind of across the street, and There's a big lawn. Yeah. If you look at the aerial pictures, that circular drive is really big, and there's, like, kind of a lot of lawn. The building is really kind of recessed away from the street. It seems like a weird place where people will be hanging around. Yeah, right, right. It's not a logical place. It's certainly not a logical place to go, like, carjacking and stuff, because it's, like, after hours. I know, right. And it's a state car. State car, you know. know, That's what I wouldn't get. Wouldn't you go
0: to, like, a parking lot or something? Right. Right. With fancy cars. So,
1: (laughs) Kallstrom then goes on to say, well, those recantations are incredible. Yeah, and several witness, witnesses haven't recanted and talk, they talk about the inconclusive DNA. This is one of the things that was really important to the, the judge said, well, whatever you think of Krause's testimony, if his confession had been allowed into evidence at trial, there was a strong likelihood that the jury verdict could have been different. Yeah. And, and yeah. so in right. that sense that's it never should, it should not have been excluded. That's the standard by, yeah. So let me just kind of uh, more or less summarize the conspiracy theory that Kevin and Pat Franke, Phil Stanford, and various other people have proposed. One of the things that Kevin has pointed out to are some things that he found strange. Again, this is his recollection, his portrayal. He said when Richard Peterson, remember this is the guy second in command, basically under Frankie at the corrections department first called Frankie, who then was living, I believe in Arizona, um, told him, Tim, his brother, he, he actually called him and said, your brother was dead. He's been shot. Kevin, you know, basically thinks that th- that in fact was what was said to him, that this is a kind of reveals that Peterson was somehow in on a plot, and what they think the plot was, was that Peterson and McAllister in particular were corrupt, were running a drug ring, um, among other things, possibly out of the state penitentiary, and were afraid that Michael Frankie was about to expose that. They arranged to have him killed, but, but wanted it to look like a suicide, where Frankie would be found in his office, like Uh. with a bullet in his head. And he said, you know, when he later found out that Michael was stabbed and there was no gunshot wounds at all, in fact, he found this very, very odd. Why did Peterson say he was shot when he called him? Um, And he doesn't say in the podcast that that
2: definitely is a sign, but he said it, you know, it makes
1: him... Right, right. They never sort of come right out and say it was Scott McAllister, but they kind of hint, and Phil Stanford hints a lot, that McAllister was sort of the the primary bad actor. He had free access to go in and out of the state prison. Um, He apparently did that on a daily basis. Uh, There is evidence that corruption that was involved included a lot of drug smuggling into the prison. That's one of the big claims. And as I said, both brothers claim that Michael had, basically named both Peterson and McAllister as officials in his own department who were the kind of the most problematic for him. Now, there's some interesting things about McAllister. And this is where the Oregonian, particularly in the 2005 article, where they did what apparently seemed to be a really major kind of review of the case they claimed to have looked at like, tens of thousands of documents and things mm. like that, and basically said, no, it was Frank Gable, and the conspiracy theory really doesn't have merit. Now, this is one of the things where I feel that they clearly were soft-peddling things, because this is stuff about McAllister that is a matter of public record. The Portland Tribune has found that Scott McAllister, in the early 80s, was found to have been going to prostitutes, mm. getting uh, sex for $10, and... Mm. Um, when he was caught right. when he mm-hmm. was caught he claimed he was doing undercover work for yeah. the general's <laughs> office and doing the attorney cover. general's office said there was, he had no authorization to do any kind he of work. Under- he was a freelancer. Like. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, that's just something that's a little bit untoward. And then he later, he's working as legal counsel for the Department of Corrections, going in and out of the prison continually on a day-to-day basis. And then later, you remember, he very shortly after Frankie S. Keldy's in Utah, working for Department of Corrections there. The woman, I think her name is Laura Parker, was the secretary, basically after several months uh, basically charges him with sexual harassment oh. and they interview her in the podcast in it's an interesting series of interviews where she basically says she was scared to death of him he was very aggressive she the Oregonian kind of describes her as his girlfriend and they, <laughs> they kind of imply that she's a girlfriend who's kind of getting back at him by oh, making geez. these charges she basically said she was never his girlfriend he sexually harassed her once she made that charge her tires were slashed. Other things happened that really, really uh, frightened her. She's still frightened of him, apparently. Um, and
2: wasn't she transferred to some really shithole job? Yeah, right. She
1: was transferred. After she
2: broke up, kind of, quote, unquote, she told him she and, didn't want to have sex with him anymore. Right, right. He was kind right. of making her have sex Right, with him. right.
1: One of the things that she found... Uh, or she said, was that he, during the course of the investigation, I think maybe this might have been for the task force, he was asked about, the 1989 task force, he was asked about, like, well, have you ever, did you know about corruption in the Department of Correction? He says, no, I never saw any corruption. Well, mm. you know, corruption. Then it, it, she said he had files that were confidential files about, the Michael Frankie murder investigation and he's in Utah working for a different department of corrections she said she saw these files in McAllister's office and she said there's no reason why he should have those files he was as he said in his when he was questioned about the Michael Frankie murder hey I was gone I wasn't even working for the department of corrections anymore at that point I know nothing about this I know nothing about corruption I have nothing to do with this she said then why was he getting these files and then she also said he had videos and a lot of of them. What she termed child porn, this is again in the 2005 Oregonian article, they called Teen porn. Yeah. Which to me is again is soft peddling. That makes me. Like he was charged in Utah.
2: Who? You know, yes, so. he
1: was charged in Utah with disseminating child pornography. Right. He got a seven day sentence. In right. and, um, and in the Oregonian 2005 article, they say, oh, well, that was just videos from a child porn case he had prosecuted or he had been involved in investigating right. when he was in Oregon. But, and from what Laura Parker says, not only for one thing, why does he sell these tapes? Right. And you why is he bring, disseminating them? Right. You
2: don't bring evidence with you. And I, and, right. and I remember. And she said, get a lot more. Right. And I remember from the podcast, you know, you talked about how he and Frankie had a falling out. I was doing something when I was listening to this part, so I don't remember all the details, but when they were pals, they went on a ski trip, and Michael Frankie left like the first night or the next day and came back and said, I never want to have anything to do with Scott McAllister again, but never told anyone what it was about. Yeah. But yeah. that was
1: the falling out. And you, one of the things that the Oregonian said was that, oh, that whole story of the falling out the ski trip isn't true because we looked at his travel records, and it looked like that Michael Frankie did cancel his flight back to uh, Portland, or rather Salem, from Reno, but he drove back, a 10-hour drive, and he drove back with Scott McAllister. The so they couldn't have had this falling out. And I'm like, yeah, but where did they get that story? Yeah. they Maybe they have documentation that Michael Frankie canceled his flight Right. Um, and even maybe somehow got confirmation that he drove back right. to Salem from Reno. But who's telling them? But I think also, that Scott McElseer right. shared the ride with him, and they were all getting I along fine. And podcast, I'm like, possible. They don't say where they got this from. I think also
2: possible on the podcast, mm-hmm. and I could be remembering it wrong. His assistant Elaine, I think her name was, mm-hmm.
1: right. confirmed Elaine that Krause, think, yeah. because
2: she said it. He never would say.
1: And there was another woman whose last name was Meeks, who the Queen Six interviewed, and it was like in the early 2000s um, and they were oh it was the 10 year anniversary of Michael Frankie's death and right. she was a woman who was some sort of staffer in corrections in that building, and she said the same thing. She said there was some sort of falling out right. between them. She said no one ever really knew the details, so it was more than one person who confirmed that. And my whole point on the Oregonian giving this story about well, McAllister and and Michael Frankie are driving back from Reno on this long drive back, and I'm like, who's telling them that? Right? Is it Scott McAllister? Yeah, and and right. did Scott McAllister tell them they don't they don't say right. how yeah. they got that story? And it's Noel Crombie who did such a great job on the. Route 20 killer, but, who, is, who is sharing with another veteran Oregon reporter in this 2005 story, where they're really kind
2: well, of soft-pedaling. Well, you also don't know what, what the editor input
1: was, right, right. what they were told not to put in, right, what they were told right, to right. put in. So, but my whole thing is that just because they also are really downplaying and soft-pedaling really kind of egregious things that Scott McArthur totally did. I mean, calling child porn, teen porn, that's a way to make it seem less bad. They really just totally... Gloss over That's the early good. '80s stuff with prostitutes. Yeah. They just and make was, a little hit about and that. That was in
2: 2005. Yeah, just know? the Oregonian yeah. articles in
1: 2005, well, and then there was a Portland Tribune kind of rebuttal to it. That wasn't as detailed as I would have liked. See, nowadays
2: but, that stuff would be taken a lot more seriously. Yeah, 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 well, yeah right, well,
0: right. Yeah, but what newspaper called? I think it was the New York Times called instead of saying. Girls, they call them underage women. Yeah, but yeah, pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right.
1: So the upshot is that the conspiracy theory is that there was this corruption, possibly McAllister being the worst actor, and there's some connections with state police as well, and the idea was to get someone to kill uh, Michael Frankie, make it look like suicide, and somehow in the encounter, possibly the nearly 6'4 athletic frankie putting up more of a fight than the assailants expected he ends up getting stabbed and the whole thing doesn't um go away oh another to. thing laura parker absolutely swears and though again the oregonian tries to cast doubt on this she swears that she overheard McAllister saying to someone i think it was in a phone conversation that it was that he was referring to frankie and that it was supposed to be a, a suicide but someone botched it yeah. you know and so and again you know do you believe her, do right. not? And again, I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, too. And again, it's pretty well referenced. And they say um, that on the podcast, yeah. too. The McElster theory gained credence in October 1991, when one of the private investigators who worked on the Gable defense team, H. Wayne Holm, this is really weird, was killed by a Multnomah County sheriff's deputy, Brian Martinick, who is now an assistant chief of police, Portland Police Bureau. I'm like, I, that's something we mm. have got to look into. Nah. Allegedly, during a reverse sting drug operation, Holm, who had been a former inmate in the Oregon Correction System during the early 1980s, had assisted numerous other inmates with parole hearing presentation and had known Scott McAllister, who represented the Parole and Probation Board during those hearings. He's actually described as the Inspector General of the Corrections Department. Mm. No. Holm had offered the theory that the primary motivation for Frankie's murder was that he discovered a plot by McAllister to, in quote, sell paroles to inmates. Adding to the mix was the fact that the person who had been appointed to fill Frankie's office after his death in 1997 had been Fred Pierce, the longtime chief uh, sheriff of Multnomah County, and the man who had originally hired Martinet. So that's a kind of whole weird story that I haven't mm. uh, kind of looked into. But anyway, Scott McAllister definitely is a kind of a
2: And I can see, possible... you know, on the whole conspiracy level, it could be as simple as Scott McAllister saying, I don't like that guy. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. screwing underage girls and I'm doing this and that and th- and this guy's testifying before the legislature and I just he, and white, maybe yes, he's just too
0: who knows what caused their falling out but if it was something just something about McAllister maybe thought that um Frankie would somehow go in on him with something or, or right. do something but like that. Was, and he realized that he wasn't going to, just realizing that somebody And he in was an your, outsider. Yeah, yeah. Remember
1: that too. And yeah. one of the things that Phil Stanford says is you have to understand the whole Department of Corrections. He called it a kind of incestuous mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. You know people hired right. brother- all related. related. You got yeah. a chance there's a bunch of people Homegrown Oregonians who just kind of have the system and you know, kind of reformer from New Mexico wants to president. change everything. One other individual has been named as Hoyt Cup, the former warden of the Oregon State Penitentiary, as though we don't have enough kind of potential suspects. Mm-hmm. In two thousand seven, a convicted felon gave a series of interviews to Willamette at Week in which he claimed that he witnessed Cup and another unnamed corrections official pay Natividad to Natividad twenty thousand dollars. And that Natividad later informed him it was payment for killing Frankie. Cup died of cancer and 1990, so like really Mm. early in all this. So the one of the last things I want to talk about is the Neil Goldschmidt factor. Uh, So Neil Goldschmidt was governor. He's the guy who hired Frankie basically proposed to the state legislature that they should change the chain of command so that the Department of Corrections would report directly to him. The whole point of him hiring Frankie was to root out corruption and, you know, all the problems, you know. So what seems strange to people, once Frankie's murder happened and the investigation started was Goldschmidt got very, very defensive and impatient whenever there was a kind of implication that somehow corruption in the Department of Corrections could have something to do with Frankie's murder. And he just seemed to really, really resist any kind of entertaining Mm. of that as a possible path of inquiry. One of the things that several sources say is almost immediately, corruption in the Department of Corrections was considered. But then, you know, they found Frank Gable. And it doesn't really say, was it really seriously considered? Or were there, in fact, people who brought it up and somehow it was squelched. And Goldschmidt seemed to really resist this. And the coins Six a broadcast shows this speech, you know, where Goldschmidt names this task force into corruption because he's like, I want people to put up or shut up. If you keep talking about corruption, I want to see if there really is significant corruption. Then mm-hmm. various people, for instance, uh, State Senator Jim Hill said he actually talked personally to Goldschmidt and said, this is the kind of crime we should probably get the FBI involved. You know, I mean, it shouldn't be maybe the state police yeah, doing right, it. Definitely. There is, Especially if there could possibly be Corruption of state officials, and let's get the FBI in and make sure we really have a more independent investigation. He said Goldschmidt was absolutely adamant, and Mm. you know, so various people over time were like, "What? Why Why was Goldschmidt so resistant?" Why? And then Mm -hmm. in 2004, a reporter for Willamette Week, Nigel Jackwitz, once again, Willamette Week or Portland Tribune, basically steals the thunder of the Oregonian and scoops a really big story that the Oregonian missed. Um, basically because they were being too differential to people like bob packwood mm-hmm. yeah. yeah 10 years before neil goldschmidt was like this golden boy right and he was this very popular seemingly very effective governor of oregon a year before he would have had to run for re-election, he suddenly announces he's not going to run for re-election. And everyone's Mm. wondered why. He talked about a
2: possible presidential Yeah, possible.
1: And certainly maybe, like, oh, maybe he'll run for Senate, something like that. Never does. He basically ends his political career. People always thought that very strange. He still remained, however, a very highly regarded figure. I don't know what he did. He might have done legal work or something. Mm. But he was sort of, as they said, he still kind of remained a kind of kingmaker behind the scenes in Oregon politics. Was highly regarded. I moved to Oregon in 2001. And Neil Goldschmidt, he's still alive, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, was kind of this huge figure still, even though he didn't hold elective office and hadn't for years and years, as this, you know, really moderate, innovative, great states. Well, in 2004, the Willamette Week exposed the fact that Neil Goldschmidt, when he was mayor of Portland, had had a basically had committed sexual child abuse on a minor young woman. She said she was 13 at the time. Others, at when it started, others said she may have been 14. Oh, okay. But she was well under the age of consent. Again, the Oregonian, in a number of stories when this broke... Continue to refer to it as an affair. An affair. Oh, I hate t- that. Um, I hate Margie that. Margie Boulay, who was a longtime reporter at the Oregonian, interviewed the victim years later, and when she was a young adult. And in fact, the Oregonian wouldn't publish those stories until after the victim died. And she died, oh, you know, geez. relatively young. I think like when she was about forty or something of yeah. like the problems with alcoholism. It's yeah. really, really yeah, a sad, sad story. story. She was really traumatized and really, really damaged by oh, yeah. this. And so the, the Oregonian. Knowing about apparently like either it was right after or they knew of the Willamette Week scoop on Goldschmidt, they interviewed Goldschmidt and Margie Boulay. And remember, she also at the time was a reporter for the Oregonian. She right. she said she was just horrified by it because she actually was interviewing the victim around the same time mm-hmm. and this is in 2004 so years and years after it happened i think it was early 80s when he was mayor of portland and he was a family friend her parents Ugh. worshipped him he mm-hmm. um it was at a oh, family event in her home yeah. in saying. her home that they he they went down to the basement together and he initiated the the ew, abuse ew, ew, ew. for three years it continued he uh, used to until she aged out she oh. would wait by the, her bedroom window when he came home he in the neighborhood. When he came home from his mayor office work, his official car would go by with a Portland police driver as mm-hmm. his driver in security detail. Mm-hmm. If he wanted to visit her later that night, the lights of the car would flash. Ugh. And she would know that after her parents went to sleep, she should unlock the door, the back door. Wow. And go. She would come in. They would have sex and stuff in the basement. He would sneak out again. Yes, he would rape um, her in the basement. Right, right. He, he would rape underage. her in the basement. And Phil Stanford says that the guy who was the... Portland cop, who was his driver when that was happening and clearly knew what was going on and was complicit in it, later worked with the state police, was still part of Goldschmidt's security department, he was governor, and during the Frankie investigation, Goldschmidt and his wife were going through divorce proceedings, and the same guy, this driver, who was both Portland police and then later state police was having an affair with Goldschmidt's wife. <sighs> you yeah, know, the whole thing is so, so this com- could convoluted. Have, this
2: whole thing, Frankie, could have been not about corruption in the Department of Corrections, but people, McAllister and Goldschmidt and people like that, being afraid that with Frankie uncovering corruption, he was also going to uncover the fact that they were child rapists. Right. Yeah. Well,
1: whether McAllister was involved with Goldschmidt and anything like that, I think the the easiest way to look at it is Goldschmidt had his own... Skeletons right. to, to conceal. When people were getting too yes. aggressive about the idea of investigating state officials, right. he yeah. was afraid and, and yeah, Stanford thinks awesome. that almost certainly this guy was the driver, you know, had this position with the state police right. were, were able to basically to blackmail Goldschmidt yeah, and I'm say, sure you know, are. back off, right. make well, sure that no one gets too deep into this fucking murder because, right. because we've got this on you and it's all going to come out if you uh, let the FBI in or if you allow... Uh, you know, so the whole thing yeah. with all of this kind of just explains a lot. It certainly explains Goldschmidt. And you don't even have to assume that he and McAllister were in on something together. Yeah, yeah oh, I'm not even saying yeah, together, yeah. but just the yeah, fact that
2: yeah. there were other things going on. Once somebody kind of turns starts that light
0: on, up, you yeah, know, yeah, digging right, into right. things. Yeah.
1: So the upshot is that, you know, some of the big questions still to me is I can't decide Conclusively one way or another. But the thing that still really irks me more than anything else is the questions, the weird circumstances of the crime scene, strange inconsistencies. It does not seem like a crime scene that can be explained by an interrupted car theft. Right. it Seems like there no. was something more involved and it doesn't mean that there was something more involved, but the, it's weird enough with Gables being released by order of a federal judge, a kind of using that as a sort of, well, hey, he was convicted for the crime, seems like he's the guy who did it, that is no longer really there as a bulwark of the official story. Yeah. It's clear that there was some significant corruption in the Department of Corrections. As, as Mo says, you know, whether Frankie was really onto it and was going to expose it or not, yeah, it, doesn't it, it, doesn't it certainly matter. doesn't seem what they think. unreasonable yeah. to think that various top people would be very fearful, especially that he if he's oh, he the was, kind of guy yeah. who was saying,
2: "Yeah, I've uncovered some stuff, but but isn't telling people what it is." You know, because he wants to protect the people and he doesn't want it all. He wants to go through the proper channels. Right. That people are like, "Shit,"
0: you and know, it's or like, he's just seen as somebody that's going to be a pain in something. the ass. And, and I also, just, I seem to remember
2: yeah. when I was listening to the Tim Natividad episode of that podcast, and I could be remembering this wrong. That the police claimed that they talked to him and meh, he he's not a suspect, but nobody can find
1: any report or any right. note. that Well, he, he was, was dead two weeks after the murder, right? I was, so I don't know. Like one of the things I've heard is that he maybe there was someone else who thought he talked to or something. Well, I just but.
2: remember I was in the middle of doing something else when I was listening yeah, to I'll that to I just remember that. saying to the cat, uh, Brady violation yeah, yeah. or something and it had to do with Tim Nativity. I'll have to re-listen to that. that I want to actually re-listen
1: remember. to the podcast because yes, yes. it's very sprawling and detailed. Yes, and, it is. It's and sprawling. now that I've read more, much more about the case, I can kind of place these people and I right. know the names and I've right. even seen them on video yeah. and everything so I kind of, well, I do want to yes, end with one yeah. last little epilogue and this is right at the very end of the COIN6 project It was posted in October and it's just an interesting little dangling little tantalizing little loose and they placed at the end of their overview of the topic so this is called like epilogue and it was posted like sometime this past october it says a lot can be accomplished in 30 minutes inside the group living section at the oregon state penitentiary there was a special office and this office worked an inmate clerk judge warden and his report on corruption within the prison system details how this inmate clerk in quotes, made cell assignments, controlled prison jobs and payroll and gave orders to inmates and corrections staff alike. Warden's report describes how this, in quotes, con boss was allegedly being protected by a senior officer who, in quotes, You know, this is Warden's report they're quoting from. Chastised subordinates who challenged his authority. According to Warden's report, remember this was issued late in 1989, you know, Goldschmidt tasked this guy to see if there really was corruption. Mm -hmm. And he did say there was significant corruption, but did not publicly name names. According to Warden's report, inside this inmate clerk's office, this inmate clerk had a telephone he could use to make calls within the prison. The office was furnished nicely. Oh, featured an entertainment setup and, most strangely, a computer for his personal use. Mm. A computer in an office in which he was, in quotes, permitted to deny access to anyone else, including staff. And this is an inmate. This is an inmate. Yeah. Yeah. In the course of his investigation, okay. Warden, who had been charged by Governor Neil Goldschmidt to find out if corruption inside the prison was connected to Michael Frankie's murder, by the way, the report in the report he said they could not find any connection to the murder. Right. They did say, yes, we found a lot of rampant corruption yeah. and wrongdoing, right. but nothing to connect right. it to no Frankie's murder. murder. Oh, yeah, no smoking gun. gun. That's what they claimed it. Right. Warden, Warden became aware of the questionable arrangement with inmate clerk. Investigators carried out an unannounced visit on the office and made some startling discoveries. According to Warren's report, the computer had been supplied by the inmate and was being operated with systems even the computer's manufacturer could not comprehend. The passwords were known only to the inmate. Investigators also found, in quotes, tools and devices that would have allowed the inmates computer access to Oregon State Prison's computer systems. Mm. Oregon investigators also confiscated several floppy disks from the inmates' clerk office in, in quotes, an attempt to determine the full extent of the inmates' activities, unquote. At least six of the files on the floppy disk had been, in quotes, modified by the inmate clerk. Less than a half an hour before the unannounced visit, and that ends there. Mm. So it's sort of like, ooh, mystery, unexplained yeah. things. There was something going on. So I there think.
2: was an inmate in the prison who had a supercomputer, right, right, who could access things throughout could, the Department of and Church. nobody right, else right. could get
1: into it. And the nobody office. but that inmate could get yeah, into interesting, it. Interesting, except yes. possibly this one senior official who mm. had basically given that inmate this access. Mm.
2: Well, that was a very good, interesting
0: report, yeah. even though I've been listening to that podcast. Well, now yeah. I'm
1: going to have to listen to Well, the I podcast. need to review the podcast again, because now, again, you know, I was like doing dishes yeah. or, or like falling asleep, right. you, you know, times. The and it is, re- it is kind of difficult to comprehend all the detail when you just listen to it cold. And to put it together into,
2: okay, so what really is going on? Right. And
1: I think I'll be able to listen to it with a kind of more discerning ear now, because yeah. I, I know so much more about the case. And I do want to watch that without evidence movie just because yes, yes, it is on YouTube. Yes. Oh, and it looks like it it's really that. pretty cheesy. Yeah. And I, I just the two more episodes of the podcast have yet to drop yes. in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So, yeah you
2: know, we'll see and, if and I and I just want to reiterate whatever you may think of who might have killed Michael Frankie. It's another situation where it could have been some simple burglary or yes. something type thing. But because the investigation and everything is so fucked up right? it makes it look worse. Like if people are on the up and up Mm-hmm. They want
0: to do a good investigation. They want right. to find out what right. happened and, and who did it. But right. and if they don't want right. to find there it. There are
2: times in investigations where it isn't done right and cops are lazy and stuff. But this was a top state official. Right, right. So you figure they're going to put the best people you on would, it. You would think, And yeah. that obviously didn't happen. And Frank Gable... It was obviously case of let's just grab a guy that nobody's gonna protest about and set him up mm-hmm. so we can find
1: somebody guilty and shut
2: shut him yes. up. Yes.
1: Whatever their motive for doing that was. The kind of continual kind of discounting of corruption against all the evidence that there was corruption. Right. I would kind of take the supporters of the official story and the, more seriously in their criticisms of the conspiracy theory if they would kind of be more upfront and acknowledge the corruption that clearly did exist right. and not try to whitewash, like McAllister, and say, look, yeah, there were some really bad actors, but well, da da da, da like but they the don't McAllister, do that. They, and a,
2: a yeah. guy like that, what they found out is probably the tip of the iceberg, because right, right. people like that are good, especially when they're in positions of power, at hiding what they've been up to. Right. And so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he wants to get rid of somebody who's Causing him discomfort, just right. like guy psychopath guys do with their wives right, or right. girlfriends or whatever. It's just because Michael Frankie was a top state official doesn't mean somebody like McAllister isn't going to have him killed and obviously somebody like him isn't going to do it himself right he right. knows a lot of criminals about bad guys. And, and
1: also what would make sense that he would plan it to make make it look like a suicide oh and one of the things that Oregonian or some other there's a, another on the COIN 6 report they have a guy named Josh Markwish I think he wasn't involved in the investigation at all though he admits he does know people who were so mm-hmm. he might have a little bit of a bias but he's a big skeptic of the conspiracy theory and he says stuff like well you know sometimes shit just happens most crimes really are just random stupid guys and he also says you know if they were going to hire someone to assassinate Michael Frankie, wouldn't but would they've chosen some low-life drug and I'm like well yes. yeah because those are the guys put someone like McAllister interacted with every single day of And so, also, so. Yeah. you're not you choose a low life like that so nobody protests too
2: much
0: when right they arrested. exactly and yeah. yeah
1: so so this guy's kind of attempt to kind of discount the conspiracy theory just weren't very effective for me because he just you know I'm like well no in fact right. you know in fact it seems like there are a lot it's of times where people like, hire an no, assassin and this is exactly the type of And I'm remembering person like we were are. talking about
2: the the Jaminet thing like three years ago now if you were going to say it couldn't have happened that way blah 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 you need to speak to the facts of it and the evidence yes yeah, so that may I,
0: just what And not just speculate. Well, that couldn't happen. Because
1: blah, blah. Who would do that? Well, it's funny. Who would do that?
0: Yeah. It's it's
1: funny because he basically says, I don't know if it's about Phil Stanford or some other person who's really pushing the conspiracy theory he says, well, someone, oh, I think it was the the investigator who really thought that John Krause was the guy. Yeah. He says, well, sometimes you just, he was a good investigator, but sometimes you just get in love with, you fall in love with the story and mm-hmm. you just can't get off it. And I'm thinking, I said, well, this is kind of ironic because yeah, I think I know. the people who support the official story it. are the ones who are really right. kind of doing that right. more like, well, oh, it's this, you know, it's this car theft and oh no, it couldn't have anything to do with corruption. And, and, and the, people who are really... Into the power they've been given, like
2: McAllister and Goldschmidt Mm -hmm. and other people, will do anything to keep it. They're in a
1: pretty exalted position, and somebody's fucking with their shit. One you of know. the one of the things that Oregonian said that I thought was disingenuous was like, why would Scott McAllister be worried? He was in Utah, but and I'm like, well, not when Frankie was killed, he wasn't. He had only resigned yeah. two weeks before. Might very well be criminally liable right. for some of the things that Frankie might have uncovered. So that that to me seemed really disingenuous. Yeah. Like, and
2: also I want to point out in uh, just before yeah. I forget, the, when we talk about the Oregonian, lots of times in cases like that, it's not necessarily the reporters. Or even the people in the newsroom um, right, right. who are driving how something is covered. I, it's people much higher up. Like if you watch the fifth season of The Wire, you yeah, know, it's it's, you right? Know. Yeah.
1: Well, Margie Boulay said she found out she was mystified why they were so resistant, why they were soft pedaling Goldschmidt so much in the aftermath of the exposure of his abuse of this young girl, mm-hmm. and why they were resisting publishing her stories based on the interviews with the victim. And she said it wasn't until later that she learned that some of the editorial board were. Closest close friends right. with Goldschmidt of Goldsmith, yeah, were and, right. you, know, where, you know, and she said that was all at the upper editorial people board level. And run right, And a lot of cases
2: are wealthy people and who aren't in the news. In these
1: reporters the who wrote the the story that I'm kind of critical of, are good reporters who, who've who've reported lots of other really, they're right. longtime reporters.
0: As far as conspiracy theories go, it's not like it's a way out theory. Right. It's not like it's something that right. there's no way, not, like the stupid like Alex Jones type things where right, right. you know. Right. right. Well, as I it's, said,
1: it's just a. It actually, could it could just be McAllister Peterson, a couple of guys right. in crucial positions in right. the state police, and maybe a couple of people right. in Goldschmidt's office. It doesn't. Like, Oregon is not that big a state. Right. It was smaller than. It's like Maine. Uh, it's like yeah. maybe three million yeah. people now. It was probably just about one and a half million back yeah. then. Mm-hmm. Salem was a city of about a hundred thousand people then. Like um, Barbara, You know, it Barbara. was not. It's not like New York right. State or California. It
2: just means a couple people get into. Together yeah. and saying, let's do this to cover our yeah, asses. Doesn't right.
0: Like like, but right, no, 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 that's no, no. like
2: what I was saying at the beginning. It's it's become this loaded right. word. And I think that in fact the corruption theory has been labeled a conspiracy theory by people who like the official story better. Right. Because right. what you're saying when you say conspiracy theory is here's a bunch of nuts. They don't yeah, think right, Lee right. Harvey Oswald killed JFK. They don't think the kids, you know, at Sandy yeah. Hook were really killed their right, bunch of right, actors, right, blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, because that's what conspiracy theory is. Yeah, and there
1: become. is a lot of bad conspiracy theory out there. Yep. There is. There are. But
2: as you said, that doesn't mean there aren't genuine conspiracies. People yeah. have been killing people since time began. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that he would be killed by somebody who doesn't want to lose their power yeah, or right. their life or thinks he's a nuisance even. Right, 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 And to say, why would a guy like McAllister, blah, 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 do this? Well, why would any psychopath do what right, they right, do. I know. You know, like you hear that, well, why would he kill her only for a $50,000 insurance? Right. Or I'm like, why
1: didn't he just get, get divorced? Right. You know, and, and it's
2: like, because this is the way they get rid of their problem. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And somebody like him can do it
1: without. It's pretty easy to do. Blood. He knows plenty of people that would do it. It's interesting to note that the prior investigation was done by the state police. Stanford says, no, it was pretty much the case where we'll do this investigation to kind of Continue to cover up the problem. Now you had this the guy, the head this true reformer type who had truly made real change in the New Mexico Department of Corrections. He comes in from outside. And I can see them being well, really worried about yeah. what he yes. was going to do. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So. So anyway, well, well thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me.
2: And we're not going to do recommendations because the three of us and our mother are going to see Little Women. Oh yeah. You can find us on Crime and Stuff online. We're on Facebook and Twitter and kind of Instagram, hopefully by the time. Yeah. You always, you say that every
0: time, I know and we I never do, do Instagram. I know. So. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
2: if you're liking what you're hearing, can always donate on Patreon. Yes. Thank you who everyone. Yes. Thank you, Liz. Yeah. We Thank appreciate you. it. And oh. until next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>